All right. Well, once again, thank you for being here this morning. Uh, this morning, we're going to be studying the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 1. Uh, so if you have your Bibles, uh, go ahead and open, open them up to Ephesians chapter 1. If you use your phone, your iPad, or tablet, that's fine too. No problems. Uh, Ephesians chapter 1, and we're going to start at verse 15 and go to uh, verse 23. Now, as we learned last week uh, from Pastor Craig, some of the letters that Paul wrote to the churches, he wrote in some cases because the church was heading in the wrong direction. Other times he wrote a letter to the churches uh, because they were doing well. He wanted to encourage them and congratulate them and, con- and encourage them to continue on uh, doing well. And this letter to the Ephesians is one of those where he's congratulating the church on doing well. Things are going well. They received the message of Jesus and like a well-watered seed, things are growing. Things are changing and uh, it's, it's really doing well. And what's so special about that, when Christians live out their faith the way Jesus intended, they become a beacon of light for others in the community. Other people see that, and they learn about Jesus Christ. It draws them in. So as we read about chapter 1 today, you're going to clearly see Paul's words of encouragement and joy. But at the same time, imagine in your minds what this particular church looked like in Ephesus to outsiders, people who didn't know anything about Jesus Christ. What did they learn? What did they see? Right? Did it draw them closer, or did it push them away? Now, from Paul, Paul's perspective, everything he sees was very, very good. And it's part of what brings him so much joy. But I think it's always important for our own individual selves to get that mental picture as well. So let's jump in and let's see what Paul says in Ephesians 1, uh, 15 and 16. He says, For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and, and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you and remembering you in my prayers. So Paul, he's, he's joyful and he's overflowing with praise and thanks because of some very specific things that are happening at this church. And number one, they have solid faith in Jesus Christ. And number two, they have love for all of God's people. All right, so let's talk about those things. And let's first talk about their faith in Jesus. Again, as we learned last week from Pastor Craig, having true faith marks you as one of God's children. You're literally marked with the Holy Spirit. And this may, means you belong to God. But that's not the end point. Like, like becoming baptized, that's awesome. Everyone should become baptized. But is that the end point? Do you just stop and then go right back to your old life the same way? No, it, you, you're changed to become something new. That's never the end of the plan. The Holy Spirit comes within you. God marks you as his own and then guides your steps for the rest of your life. So being in the family of God is not about being a Christ follower, becoming baptized, and then going back to your old ways and looking the same as everyone else. If nothing about you has changed, then nothing's changed. Exactly. For example, this is the way I always like to make a mental picture of this. Imagine we have two towns. So to make it easy, let's say this is one town, this is the other town. There's a thousand people in this town, a thousand in the other. This town, everyone goes to church, has a Bible, claims to be a Christian, all that kind of stuff. And this side, nobody knows Jesus Christ, no Bibles, nothing, no churches. If we step back and from a 10,000-foot view, compare each town, and there's the exact same amount of drug abuse, addiction, crime, strip clubs, gambling, you name it, same amount of charity for people in need, donations to the poor, all that stuff, does Jesus Christ really matter? No. When you become a follower of Jesus Christ, you should look. You should act different from everyone else. If you look exactly the same, then nothing has changed. We should be different, right? So what the point is, here in Ephesians, we see Paul happy over the moon because this church looks different from everywhere else. It stands out. He says, 
I can see the love that you have for all of God's people. It's visible, right? Believers, non-believers, foreigners, all kinds of stuff. And you look at his words, they showed no difference to anyone, right? And you can see it from the outside in. It's visible. It's palpable, right? And that's really where the goalposts should be for Christianity. If we look exactly the same, is everybody else do exactly the same? Is everyone else, then Jesus Christ makes no difference. But if he is different, he changed us, we should be different. Now let's look at something Jesus said himself in John chapter 13, because I love going back to Jesus because a lot of the stuff he says is very non-vague. Does that make sense? I mean, it's like, you know exactly what he means. You can't go, well, I don't get that. It's very out there, right out there. And this is what he says in John chapter 13, verses 34 to 35. He says, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. Is that clear? Not vague, right? Look at 35. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Again, not vague. Look at his words. He says, by this, people will know, which means your behavior will show other people whether or not you're my disciple. They will see you. They will observe what you do, how you behave, how loving, patient, forgiving, all that kind of stuff. And that if, if you do that, I mean, some people won't, but if you do that, they will know you're my disciple. He didn't say that they're going to assume, they're going to guess, they're going to put two and two together and be like, I think so. They're going to know. It's going to be obvious by how you live, right? We should be visible disciples, right? People should see you a mile away and go, oh, that dude, that gal, totally disciple, totally a believer. They can see it, right? And this next part is important. If, for Paul, if he could see it, he means everyone else in the area of Ephesus could see that as well. This church was a great example of what it meant, excuse me, meant to follow Jesus Christ. Now, before we jump into the next verse, which is 17, there's one final thing that Paul said in verse 16 that's important. He said that he also, he never stops praying for this church. He never stops praying. And this shows that one of the jobs of the pastor and the elders is to pray for the church, to pray for all of you. Literally, and we do this here. I do this, Pastor Craig, Pastor Joey does this. Before every church service, we come together and we pray. All of we, each of us do. We pray for the service. We pray for God to speak to us, that everything we say brings new people to Jesus Christ and the people that already believe increases their faith. That's it, 100%. We come together and we pray every time. Right? Because everything that goes on in this building should be about bringing new people to Jesus and increasing the faith faith of the people who already believe, right? And what's awesome is Paul is doing this exact same thing 2,000 years ago in Ephesus, right? That's the pattern, right? So let's jump into verse 17 and see what he says next. Ephesians 1, 17. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. Right? Now, this verse needs a little explanation because we need to understand what Paul is saying and what he's not saying. When Paul prayed that, the, that God would grant the people of that church wisdom and revelation, he wasn't talking necessarily about somebody now suddenly being able to predict the future or suddenly start randomly blurting out prophecies, right, as, as some people have done. What he was talking about is growing deeper in their faith. What he's talking about is having a deeper wisdom of the Word of God, and then, this is the key, to know how to incorporate it into your life, to better navigate 
the path that God has laid out for you. So it's understanding the Word of God and His plan for your life. Now, there is certainly a place for revelation, but it's one of those words, like predestination, that can be misunderstood and misused by people. I've, I've experienced this. Predestination in particular can be misunderstood, and I've seen this where someone says, well, I'm predestined, I'm here, I believe, God chose me, right? But my neighbor doesn't know. So he wasn't predestined, God didn't choose him, so we don't need to work that hard in this area. Do you see what I'm saying? That's awful, that is not at all what predestination means, and people do that. And just like revel- the word like revelation or prophecy can be misused by people, and it's been misused. I've seen this personally. If God gives someone the gift of revelation, what this means is they have a unique gift to apply biblical truth, what's already been said, to help them and others navigate life. All right, It's not some new, completely unique information unrelated to the Bible. It's simply taking what God has already told us and using it correctly. Jesus told us to follow him, so everything that's revealed goes right along with that. One of the ways I've seen this concept of revelation or prophecy misused recently was during the COVID pandemic. There was a a number of pastors online and on TV where they had revelations that God told them to tell others to avoid the vaccine, right? Avoid it. It's the work of the devil. And then unfortunately, there was about 12 of those pastors that died of COVID, of the vaccine. Now, for the record, we don't care whether they got the vaccine or not. It's none of our business. We don't care about that vaccine or any others, whatever you do between you and and, uh, your doctor. What is our business is sharing the message of Jesus Christ as he taught it. Does that make sense? Any revelation that God sends to any one of us is going to be along the lines of what Jesus already taught. It's going to help us navigate life, right? And as Paul said, to grow closer to God. And that's what this is about. That's the reason for all this. Now let's continue. Let's head into verses 18 and 19 and see what else Paul wants us to know. He said, starting at verse 18, he said, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know, and I love this, know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. Now for a moment, let's just focus on verse 18 where he says, he prays that the eyes of their hearts may be enlightened. What he's talking about here probably can better be stated is that it takes God working within us to help us fully understand and appreciate the great gift we have in Jesus. And, and kind of, uh, again, let me explain. Sometimes I like to use examples of where people don't do things right, and it kind of makes it a little more uh, understandable. So let's pretend for a moment none of us here know anything about Jesus Christ. Don't know the Bible, never heard of the cross, nothing, right? And someone came along and said, listen, I'm going to tell you about this great spirit that lives in the sky, uh, created everything, but because we do stuff wrong, he made his son die on this wooden cross, and then we need to dunk each other underwater, and then regularly eat this stale bread and grape juice because we're going to pretend we're eating his body and blood and you need to regularly give me money too. Who wants to sign up for that kind of religion? <laughs> right? When it's presented that way, of course not. It sounds strange. So for us to hear the full story from the Bible, to hear that we're truly sinners, right, and then have a desire to turn away from that sin and to look for Jesus Christ for salvation, it does take God working within us. We need help. Looking at your life, realizing what sin is, and then wanting to change is not something people naturally want to do. They don't. I can tell you from personal experience, one of the hardest things 
to do as a pastor is to get a grown adult to truly understand their sin. This is in some cases, to truly understand their sin and then want to repent of all of it. Not to me, to God. Talking about heaven and salvation, selling the idea of heaven and salvation is very easy. Everybody wants that, right? That's a piece of cake. But the part about having to admit and to own up to everything is difficult. And there are adults, there's people I've met that refuse to do that. Or just this stuff over here I'm comfortable with. This stuff, not happening. Or they don't want to forgive others. I can forgive this, forgive for this stuff. This stuff, not happening. Don't even bother bringing it up. Not going to happen. So when Paul says he prays for hearts to be enlightened, what he means is he wants us to truly understand, to comprehend that we are sinners. God wants us to repent of that sin and then to follow Jesus Christ. Again, that's not something we naturally want to do. But we can do that with his help, right? To seek repentance and forgiveness. Because the truth is God sent Jesus to save us, to teach us, to guide us. And he says, follow in my footsteps, right? That information should enlighten us. It should make us joyful and happy and want to share that information with others, right? This is the enlightenment and the understanding that Paul was praying for. It's vital each one of us understand that, possess that, and then use that information. And the truth is, it's not always easy to do. Now, Paul also says uh, in this prayer, he talks about the eyes of our heart, right? What he means here is not kind of some far out abstract idea. He's talking about something actually concrete, something real. The eyes of our heart refers to our very core, who we are. It's where what we see in the world meets what's actually in our heart, right? It's where they come together and that can bring wisdom. But again, one of the, a good way to understand this is where sometimes we can get this wrong or can kind of miss the mark. And one example is where we have this huge, really big heart but the world troubles us the way we see things. It can bring fear and take away our hope. It can be scary. You understand the idea where someone has a really, really big heart and it's almost a liability to a degree? Then the other side of the coin is where someone doesn't have such a big heart, but they see the world exactly as it is and they get a little jaded. They don't have enough compassion, understanding. And those, that's where things can mis- mis- mismatch. So what Paul is referring to here is where your eyes and your heart meet in the way that God intends. And that's where true wisdom comes from. It's where we see the world as it is, but we have the right amount of love, patience, and forgiveness the way Jesus taught. And it helps us navigate life. Where we live in the world, but we're not crushed by fear. It's where we live in a world that has darkness, but we have the light of Jesus in us. Right? It's a very, very cool concept when we, kinda, when we come to understand that. And then right along with this, Paul talks about knowing the hope to which you're called. I love this. I absolutely love this whole concept. And this is what he talks about in verse 18. Knowing the hope to which you're called simply means that you understand that God has called you for a purpose. You're not here on accident. Every one of you he put here on purpose. He knows you by name and that you have a purpose. Now, this is one of those things, in truth, that's easier said than done in some cases. You know, feeling like you have a purpose and everything is just right when things are going well, Right? But now imagine things don't go so well. The rug gets pulled out from under you. Get the wind knocked out of you. What happens? You doubt everything. You doubt everything. God, how could you? How does this happen? Right? But we're not alone in that category. That's normal. It happens. The disciples had that happen to them a number of times. And one of the best cases of this 
is we're out, when they're out on this boat and this big storm comes up, right? Let's talk about that. It's in Mark chapter 4, verses 35 to 40. <clears throat> this is what it tells us. That day when, when evening came, so it's starting to get dark, right? Evening came, let's go over to the other side. This is Jesus. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. And there were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped, which means what? It's real danger of sinking. This isn't a cruise ship. This is a small. And remember, these are fishermen. They're not new to being on the water, right? And it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the, in the stern doing what? Sleeping on the cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care that we're going to drown, that we might die? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. And he said to his disciples, Why? Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? Now, in this story, I always like to point out two things. Number one, Jesus is the one who told them to get into the boat and go to the other side as the sun was starting to go down. This was not some accident. He set the stage for this to happen. And then what did he proceed to do? Stay alert and guide it the whole time? No, what did he do? He took a nap. Dude fell asleep. The wind was so bad, the water, the water was coming to the boat. These were experienced fishermen who were truly scared for their lives. And Jesus was sleeping. So apparently he had powers over demons to cure diseases and feed thousands of people and sleep when a boat's going down. That's pretty impressive, right? That's some, that's some peace. But the disciples, remember, the disciples had seen him cure disease, cast out demons. They were scared for their lives. So what do they do? They ask, they wake him up, not quietly. They would have been like, wake up. And then they said, don't you care that we're about to die? Don't you care? And Jesus stands up, commands the wind to stop, and it does. It totally goes away. But then Jesus Ask them two questions, and his questions show he had an expectation for them. Even while he's sleeping, he expected things from them. He expected them to understand, as Paul says, the hope to which they're called. They had a purpose. He called them there. And the same is true for us. Once we understand that God has called us, it should change everything. Once we understand that, it should change our whole perspective on life. And then whatever situation we're going through. Now, in the case we just read about, obviously the disciples were not all the way there yet. They had some room to grow, and they will. They did. But I also want to compare this to another case where some people got it right. And I mean they nailed it. And in this case, let's look at Acts chapter 16. And we're going to read about Paul and Silas. We're going to read about what they did when they were in chains, locked in the innermost cell of this jail. And as we read this, I want you to notice the difference between Paul and Silas, how they saw their situation, how they interpreted it, and how the disciples saw and interpreted their situation on the boat, right? And notice who held on to the hope to which they're called. Again, I love that phrase. So it's Acts 16, verses 23 to 25. It says, after they had been severely flogged, that means whipped, severely whipped, they were thrown into prison, And the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet to the stock. So they were locked up in chains. 
about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And then what does it tell us? And the other prisoners were doing what? Listening to them. So first off, at any point, does, in that short little story there, does, does it tell us that Paul and Silas got angry, scared, or questions, God, God, what are you doing? We're totally locked up. Don't you see that we're locked up? Does that happen? Not at all. What does it tell us that they did? They prayed and they sang hymns after they were severely whipped and locked, locked up. They never lost hope. They held on to the hope, and because they did, they saw their situation polar opposite than what the disciples did, right? In the boat, the disciples got scared. They feared for their lives. They even judged Jesus to be slacking and not picking up on the situation. And for a moment, they had a split with Jesus. They really did. Like, Jesus, what are you doing? Paul and Silas, on the other hand, did the exact opposite. They saw their position, what's going on, as one more way God was using them. That's huge. One more opportunity to share about God. So they used their time to pray and stay connected, and oh yeah, sing hymns. And then something cool happens. Whenever I talk about this story, I always make an issue to point this out. The text tells us there were other prisoners there. And what were they doing? Listening to them. They were watching them and listening. They knew who these guys were. And they were watching to see if this Jesus guy is worth anything. Or do you just abandon it all like the disciples did? What are you doing? They were observing these Christ followers. And then in some way, they were going to use that information to decide if this Jesus guy was worth their time. Right? We need to point out also that there's no guarantee from God that Paul and Silas were going to make it out of there. Never happened. There's no guarantee they were going to not be whipped again or tortured or killed. And in reality, Paul and Silas, it didn't matter. They used their time to sing praises and to pray, to spread the word. That was their job. Now, with stories like this, I love to make this personal. I mean, it's easy to read about this stuff and go, wow, great, awesome. I would totally do that. No, we probably would. What would really happen? <laughs> right? So let's, let's make this personal today, this morning. Let's, let's think about this. In this church, we regularly go on mission trips, right? And we normally don't go to like Paris, France, or London, England. We go to undeveloped, underdeveloped areas, places with great need. That's why we go there. But let's say on our next trip, because I've been to Haiti a number of times, that we're going to go to Haiti. And everybody here, and I'm going to quickly look at everybody's face if I can, you're coming with. We're going to go on a mission trip. It's very underdeveloped, and there are a number of places that aren't safe. There have been times I've involved where the police or even just the people set up roadblocks, and they'll go through your stuff, and they will take whatever they want, and there's nothing you can do. But let's say we go there. Things are going well, and at one point, the police come, and we all get locked up. And I mean locked up. There is no reading your rights. You're just, that's it. We don't know if we're ever going to get out. There's no due process. We're just locked up. And it's a rough place. It's a rough area. And as we're sitting there in the dark of the night, we've been there about, a, let's say, a week, 
It's late. And many of us are completely reevaluating whether we should have even gone on this trip at all, right? Totally understandable. Wouldn't blame you for that. But as we're sitting there, Pastor Craig and myself, we ask you to join us in prayer and then to sing a hymn. And in that moment, if you're honest with yourself, some people are like, you guys are nuts. We've got to be thinking a way to get out of here. Dig a hole. Help me. And that would be rational, right? That would be reasonable. No, I'm not blaming anybody for that. But what God calls us to do is not what's rational in the human sense. He expects us to hold on to the faith, to the hope to which we're called, and to have faith, to spread the good news and to make disciples at all times. So imagine it's late, we're in this cell, and imagine how it smells, the darkness, how cold and damp it is, and we're sitting there, I start to look at each one of you, and I say, look around, just look. And you start to look around the jail, and you see other inmates in there. I have a picture I want to show you. This is very real. This is likely who we would see. And as we're sitting there, you're watching everything we do. They know we're not from Haiti. They know we're missionaries. But here's what I want you to ask. I want to ask you, what hope do they have? What hope? Have they ever heard of Jesus Christ? Has anyone ever told them they can have hope, they can be saved? This moment might be the reason we went to Haiti to begin with. So we can either use this to share about him or don't. We are either changed and have faith and hold on to that hope or we don't. Jesus is real. He brings hope, even in a place like that. So at late at night in this jail cell, as they're watching us, Pastor Craig and I start to sing, and we ask you to join us. I'm going to ask you to join me now. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Twas grace that taught my heart to and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. That is what hope is about. Real hope. That is what Jesus is about. That's what discipleship is. And this is what's cool. This is what's so special. What we just did, that was Paul. Him and Silas did that. 
They held on to their faith. They didn't know when they were going to get out. Pastor Craig and I couldn't tell you if we would ever get out of there. What we can tell you is Jesus is real. He loves us, and we want to share him with others. Paul wasn't sharing some foreign idea he just heard about, somebody read in the book, that was him. Him and Silas lived that. So now as he continues in Ephesians 1, we're going to read the second half of verse 19 and 21. He's going to describe, and I want you to think about this, why you can do this. Why there's so much power in the name of Jesus Christ. Why we can sing in a jail cell in Haiti. This is what he says. That power is the same as the mighty strength that he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. God the Father gave Jesus all power and authority. He is our Savior. He's the Messiah. And because of all that, we have nothing to fear. The power that raised Jesus is a power that lives in us. And if that power can overcome death, then it can do anything. If God is for us, who can be against us? And, and, and to prove this point, let's go back to the disciples, because we already learned about them in the, the boat and they didn't do that good, but let's be honest, that's totally understandable. Up to the point that Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, like, Take that out and go like five minutes before that. The disciples were totally in on Jesus, right? They're like, yes, we're totally there. Take out Judas, that little thing with him, right? They were totally in. They saw him cure diseases, feed thousands, of people, all that kind of stuff. Like, yes, we, lo- we love this Jesus guy. We are totally his disciples. But the problem is seeing miracles like that doesn't always bring long-lasting, long-lasting durable faith. You know this is true because what happened the moment Jesus got arrested? We got to see how fast they could run. And they went fast. They were probably tripping over each other to get out of there as quick as they can. Peter denied ever knowing Jesus. Now, eventually, in a short amount of time, they did have some courage to meet up again, but it was behind locked doors. These were grown men, very intentionally on purpose, hid behind locked doors and pulled down the drapes. That is not something that people with solid hope and faith do, is it? That's something that people do who don't have faith, who are truly scared and don't know what's going to happen. The reality is for that short period of time, Christianity had died. There was no one that was willing to openly say they followed Jesus Christ. So what changed? What caused the disciples to go from going, I don't know Jesus, to then willing to go out and endure punishment and torture just to continue telling people about Jesus. What caused that? When they saw Jesus alive again. They saw him tortured. They saw him on the cross. They saw him in the grave. Then they saw him alive. That changed everything. And this, this is where it directly applies to us. As his followers, we know that he died and he rose again. We know that. And only someone with all the power in heaven can do that kind of thing. And because he now lives in us, we can have the same courage and conviction the disciples had. We can go into all the world, no matter where we are in all situations, and share about Jesus Christ in some way. Now, in the final verses for today, Paul's going to address the magnitude of Jesus' power 
and what he says should really put the final seal on everything that can be done through Jesus Christ. It's verses 22 and 23. He says, And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be the head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. So this means God has given Jesus Christ all authority, made him head of the church, and he's everything that we will need in every way. So after read, reading all that, taking it in, we're actually left with a decision, each one of us here. Now let me point out, every one of you came here this morning of your own, right? You, did, you wanted to come here and learn. You wanted to hear what Paul had to say. So the question is, what are you going to do with this information? First, we need to answer some questions. Do we truly believe that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, that he rose from the dead? That's the question. Is he your Messiah? And second, once we come to believe, what next? Will we do what the disciples did? Will we share about him in all situations? Will we trust in him? So if you have not answered that call, if you have not asked Jesus into your life, that's step one. We want to give you that opportunity. We always want to give people that opportunity. We want you to answer that call and to invite him into your heart. And in a minute, what we're going to do, we're going to pray. And in that prayer... If you want to ask Jesus Christ into your life, all you have to do is repeat the words that I say. There's no test. No one's going to know. You can say it quietly. Whatever you say is between you and God. But also in that prayer, we're also going to pray. If anyone here has already accepted Jesus into your heart, we're going to pray that God gives you the courage to step out, to go wherever he calls you to do whatever he wants you to do. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. Father, I believe in your son, Jesus Christ. I believe he died on the cross for my sins. And I believe that you raised him from the dead. Today I ask Jesus to come into my life and to make me new. I ask him to forgive me, to save me, to guide my steps for the rest of my life. Father, today we also, we as a church and individuals, we pray for strength and courage to endure all trials. We pray that in all places, at all times, in all situations, that we be a bright, shining example of your Son. And may our actions lead others to know him. May others see him and see him shining through us. May it bring them hope, real hope. Father, today we also commit ourselves to you. Many times in life we do get pulled away, we fall out of sync with you, but today we make the choice to commit to you. It's our choice, and we choose you. Father, we also pray for all people to come to know you and to place their trust in you. It's only through you and the saving grace of your Son that we have hope, that we're saved, and that we're made righteous. Father, we pray that as our faith grows, you will use each one of us as you see fit. Use each one of us to expand your kingdom. Father, we thank you for the life that you've given each one of us. We thank you for the church. Most of all, we thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ. In his name, we ask all these things. Amen.